Thank you for listening to Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. Buffalo What's Next is on summer break and will return with new content shortly. As we take this break, please continue to tune in to WBFO Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. and 9 p.m. for producers' picks of some of our favorite episodes of Buffalo What's Next. How can we afford not to talk about race? About education. About segregation. About humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. If we're going to have some real healing, we've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. On today's episode of Buffalo What's Next, Summertime Producers Picks, we look back at two previous segments from September 19th and September 26th of 2022. First, we look back at a conversation Thomas O'Neill White had with activist and then Madai University criminal justice professor Orlando Dixon. The two spoke about using public land for public benefits, police oversight, and his career as criminal justice professor at Madai University. Then, Jay Moran sits down with attorney Jason Daniels to speak about being black in the corporate world and how black people navigate positions typically held by white people. First, Thomas Nell White with Professor Orlando Dixon. It's been a little over two years since the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor kicked off summer-long protests, civic actions, and educational seminars relating to civil rights across the country and especially here in Buffalo. As a criminal justice professor, have we moved beyond protests here? Are we still angry? If there's been a shift away from civic actions, where are we right now? Well, to answer your question directly, yes, we are still angry. I think we have shifted a little bit away from protest. I think the pandemic, of course, had a little bit to do with that. But also we're looking at kind of a a pause in, 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 I guess, the actions against each other because we're looking at, you know, war in Ukraine and all these other things that are happening in the world. And I think we're, 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 we're kind of getting away from the original focus of it. Um, a lot of the, the way that was able to happen was because people were off because of the pandemic, right? People didn't mm-hmm. have to be at work, so that people had more time to be outside. But it was also recent, right? George Floyd had been murdered recently and you know people generally right after an event happens they're more forceful they 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 take more um they take more emphasis in being a part of the movement and so the further you move away from that of course you're always going to see less and less protest and um activism but i also think we've got a lot of measures that the city has done to try to try to move the needle a little bit um but that's always the problem the, the needle only moves a little bit Mm-hmm. The needle never moves enough. What are some examples of of the city moving the needle, even if it's just a little bit? Um, so um, the 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 Carol uh, I want to say her name right. Carol Horn. Carol Horn. Um, yeah, we had her on uh, right. a week ago. Right. The Carol Horn measure is huge, making sure that um, officers have a duty to protect um, people from other officers if, in the case that they they do something untoward. I think that's that was a huge move. Um, the um, ideas moving towards the alarms for you know the Breonna Taylor situation where no knock warrants are generally either used less, there's more justification for them, or there's an alarm that lets people know that an, a no knock warrant is about to be served. Things like that I think um, are showing that the city 
they know that there's an issue. Um, and I think what what happens though is we see those those things, and we and then the city gets to say, yeah, we're we're doing we're doing stuff to change, you know, um, change the the idea of policing around here. But then you see things like the police advisory board being dismantled, and you're like, uh, but see, this is this is the issue. Here. And I wanna I wanna circle back to that. But if we're if we're not if we're not we're no longer protesting, as Jay Z said. We're you know we're we're past kneeling or whatever. If we're not protesting, we're not doing these civic actions. Where, how do we keep pushing that needle further? If we're not going to be doing those things, um, well, we should be doing those those things. I think I think um, even though we've we've slowed it down, I think we should we should reengage. Um, it's it's not you know just a George Floyd issue, right? People are being killed every day, um, unarmed black men, um, unarmed people in general are being killed every day um, or at least every week, you know, and it's it's a shame. Nobody should have to go through that. And I think the way we get back into it, we reengage the process. We meet with our local officials because most politics are local, right? We meet with our local officials. We call and let them know this is still an issue for us. We haven't stopped caring. And we also vote. We participate in civic engagement. We also volunteer, get involved with local groups. There's local groups in every city, especially here in Buffalo, um, where you can get involved with people who are working on this every day because the work hasn't stopped. Mm -hmm. It just went behind the scenes, right? There's people who are in nonprofits that are working on this stuff every day. Um, Voice Buffalo, you got um, Citizens Action, uh, Partnership for the Public Good. There's so many people that are always working on this and um, even though it's not getting as much public attention um, there's always opportunities to get involved and back to uh, police officers do you believe police officers and citizens given what has happened with with George Floyd Breonna Taylor uh, you know recently uh, here with Willie Henley and others are we a bit more cognizant citizens and law enforcement uh, of each other, uh, is there a sense on both ends to that we need to de-escalate certain situations given what we've seen? I would say yes. I, I I genuinely believe that the police want to do their job correctly. I think there there's a history of incorrect training within the police, as in you know there's these you know um, programs throughout the United States that teach officers to kind of you know, in a, in a matter of words, shoot first and ask questions later. Um, and it's, and there's a training issue overall with police, but I also think there's a history issue, right? There's, there's the history of police being able to kind of get the benefit of the doubt in every situation. And so when you have that history and you have that training, you're going to have a situation where the police are kind of getting away with things they shouldn't get away with. And then you have policies that the public is not aware of where the pol- the pu- the public is like hey we want to see what how you you know punish these people and then you have the police pushing back saying that's personal information and things like that so we also need transparency in that way so when police are wanting to do their job right but they just don't have the tools it rely we have to rely on the government to give them those tools and say hey do your job this way share this information with the public so we can all be on the same page because as long as we're on two different pages you're always going to have the public saying police you're not doing your job right and the police pushing back saying you don't understand mm-hmm. and then i guess the elephant in the room is what what problems still exist between law enforcement and citizens 
Okay. Uh, that one's, uh, there's a lot. That's, that's <laughs> how much time you got, right? Um, I think one of the key issues is there's a lack of understanding between police and the communities that they serve. Um, police are, are to serve a purpose, right? They, they want to catch criminals. They want to protect people, right? Um, but in a traffic stop, who are you protecting if there's a person without a weapon and you're just hammering them with questions that ha are irrelevant to the reason you stopped them? Who are you protecting if you, you, you're making pretextual stops based on a person's race or gender or whatever it is? Um, it, we, we, have to, we have to give police the benefit of the doubt when they're arresting people who are doing the bad things, right? But we also have to check, you know, there, there's this saying, you know, um, you know, uh, trust in God, check everyone else, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's happening right now. Police aren't checked. Is there a problem with officers patrolling neighborhoods that they don't live in, that they're not of? Um, I, I've heard a lot about that. And, like, if you don't know the neighborhood, how effectively can you police the neighborhood, protect the neighborhood? Right. I think there was um, there was a law before in Buffalo where you had to be a, a resident. Um, a, a few people were grandfathered into that, of course. But um, so that but I think that sunset in 2020, if I'm not if I'm not I'm not certain if they, they reengaged it. But you de you definitely need people from the communities, because if you know that this certain person has, uh, for instance, a, men a mental um, disability, um, you might say, okay, well, I know this person because I'm in this community and I know that this person doesn't mean any harm. So maybe there's a way to divert this away from a criminal issue. Um, but also just knowing people, you're less likely to arrest somebody that you know for something that's irrelevant or something that that's not a crime. Um, you're more or less, you're less likely to, to, um, assume worst intentions mm -hmm. when you know the people. So you do need officers in the neighborhood. You need people who care about the citizens in that area and that they just want to serve those people rather than feel like they're a security force keeping those people down or keeping those people in check. And I want to I wanted to circle back to the police advisory board. In March, the Common Council dismantled the police advisory board. You were once a part of the police advisory board. Why why the hell would the Common Council decide to do that? Uh, it was a lot of uh, maneuvering, I guess, um, from both the Common Council, um, the police, and internal members of the board. So in, previously, in previous iterations of the board, the board was doing exactly what it was built to do. We meet with the community. We research the ideas that the community has. Um, we maybe throw in some of our own that are related to those ideas the community had. And then we present that information to the Common Council. The Common Council makes a decision on whether they want to do anything about it. Um, and we often meet with the police and also bring those ideas to the police. That was the way we were supposed to work, mm -hmm. right? However... When you get to a situation where members on the board are kind of doing whatever they want to do and they're not following that process and they're not understanding that we are here to serve, um, that's when you get into some issues, right? So the, the original issue we 
we had new members on the board for the first time in a long time. And when we had those new members on the board, some of the new members didn't understand the process for how we conducted business. They were doing things on their own. They were, you know, writing papers to people and things on behalf of the board that we didn't vote on. There were things like that that were happening internally. We weren't working together as a group, basically. Right. But before that, before that new onset group, we were working together. Mm-hmm. Great, actually. We had we talked to the police or we talked to the police and the common council about white supremacy. We had talked to them about body cameras, all types of things. We even helped, you know, the police come up with their their um, their body camera policy. So we it was working. Um, but um, the true matter of it is, we had people who were on the board that were um, in a state of white privilege where they didn't understand that even though they're trying to help, they're actually hurting. And we were trying to put those people in a mindset where they could understand, yes, what you what you have a, a just overall goal, but the way you're going about it is going to cause more problems than it does issues. We also had an insurgent member who was reporting everything that we said um, to the common council and to police. It was it was kind of an awkward thing where we're just coming up with ideas, things that we might not even do, but just trying to spitball. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have somebody that's taken every idea and and presenting it to, to the common council and, you know, um, the police as if these are things we're actually going to do when really we're just trying to figure out um, the, the next way to forward. And, you know, then there's internal, you know, drama, people are saying things um, that they shouldn't say to other members. And, yeah, it, it it became it became a, a a way of allowing the common council to come in and say, "Oh, look, you guys don't work, so we can dismantle mm-hmm. you." Well, why would the common council want to dismantle an independent advisory board? Why wouldn't you? That's a good question. Why Why wouldn't you say, "Hey, you have some issues. Fix those issues, and then once you fix those issues, we can reengage." That wasn't that wasn't the step. They didn't even meet with the com- with with the police advisory board to say. Hey, why don't we get all get in the room and hash this out? It was just immediately, let's get rid of it. And then you can think of the motivations for why you would want to get rid of an independent police advisory board and not replace it with the same type of independent police advisory board. Because I don't think any of the members of the police advisory board would have objected as long as the entity stayed independent. Mm-hmm. But that's not what the Common Council was, was saying. They wanted to make it to where they appointed members. It's not independent if you appoint members. True. Because you can appoint your fo- you can appoint your buddies. Yes. If the police advisory board were to come back, what what would what were what would be some ideas you would have for them to to take a look at um, community wide? So the first part is if if a police advisory board comes back, it has to be independent. Um, if it's not independent, then it doesn't matter what the issues are because they're not they're only going to do what the common council tells them to do um but there are some issues that still need to be addressed we still have an issue with um police doing traffic stops where um the the you know reasonable suspicion or um probable cause may not actually be there we still have an issue with um members of society being put in jail that are suffering from mental health issues um, that maybe shouldn't be put in jail. Um, we still have an issue with timing. Um, when um, Police response in certain areas is not the same in other areas. So there's a lot of issues that 
um, the police advisory board can look at. And it's kind of hard to even say, well, what are the current issues? Because that's kind of what the police advisory board did. We went to the community. We said, what are your issues, right? Mm -hmm. So right now I'm speaking from my perspective of just what I've seen. And that's not enough. And that's kind of what I was trying to tell that board member at that time. My perspective is not enough. Your perspective is not enough. We need the community's perspective. And then we can add ours into that. And um, that's what we're missing. We're missing that connection from the community directly to the board or to, directly to the common council where they have to listen mm-hmm. because the community can go into that into that those meetings and they can talk and they can say this is an issue but that doesn't have the same weight as a police advisory board going into that meeting and saying that these are the issues you're listening to buffalo what's next i'm thomas o'neill white we're talking criminal justice public land and more with madai university criminal justice professor orlando dixon public land for public use. It sounds like a simple concept, but is that happening here in the city of Buffalo? Um, to an extent, I think it's 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 more of a, a half-measure approach, and this is common what, what you see in most political areas. They give you a little bit, and then they say, well, look, we're doing something, but the something is never enough. Um, what we really need to see is we need to see, you know, tracts of land that are given to um, back to the, the residents and so they can, you know, make it green spaces. They can farm on that. They can, you know, plant, you know, um, flowers, whatever, right? We need more green spaces in the city of Buffalo, right? Um, but we also need um, tracts of land that are just left alone, that we, we're not giving to developers and saying, hey, build something on this, right? Um, sometimes you just need green space that's not used for anything, um, you know, for what is it called, uh, carbon a reduction mm-hmm. um and and i think a lot of a lot of what happens with with public land is is we pe- people look at public land and they see money um but they don't see health they don't see you know uh energy conservation they don't see you're reducing um smog they don't see like those things most of the time people look at land and say oh look a free space where we can build something and make money but we need to change our mindset to um, one where we look at these spaces and say, well, can we do something to help the city in another way? What would you do with the Kensington Expressway? Uh, there's been talk, there's plans to to turn it into something, uh, something that, that it's currently not, um, uh, connecting these neighborhoods that have been uh, bisected for years and years and years. Um, say you had the influence what would you do i would get rid of it honestly i think that's the only way that you can can completely negate the history of dissecting you know black communities um you got to completely get rid of the highway um now i say that from a perspective of like the reality of making that happen is is of course extremely difficult and then you're going to have people complain about traffic etc right um so I guess the the second state is reconnecting those communities. Um, you know, they have the over the expressway, um, you know, uh, walkers where you can walk, you know, across. Mm-hmm. Right. We need more of those. Um, we need more ways to connect these two areas that have been split. Um, not only that, you need to reinvest in those areas that you split. Absolutely. You don't necessarily have to change the ri- the road. Um, change the highway. You can just invest in those communities and pay back what you destroyed. 
And it's and it's you know also an apology would be nice. <laughs> um, hey, we acknowledge that we you know separated these communities and we destroyed a hundred years worth of progress. Maybe we should apologize for that. Maybe we should put it on the table and just say, you know, here's some truth and reconciliation about the about the issue. Now we. Uh, being WBFO, we recently obtained documents related to Buffalo and Erie County Land Trust grabbing up property from Jefferson Avenue owners and others uh, with a super bid prior to the October 6th auction, uh, essentially cutting a line to get uh, to bid. Um, and we know land trust works to keep property out of the hands of developers. Uh, but what is your what's your take on this news? Big deal? Little deal? No deal? Uh, it's a big deal. Um, assuming that is true, of course, I don't know any other details. I just, I think it's believable though. And the, the problem is that it's believable, right? Like it, there's, it's not a stretch of the imagination to think that something like this is happening in Buffalo. Um, it's the way that Buffalo treats developers. We generally, as a city, give developers all the benefit of the doubt. Then we give them the benefit of the benefit, right? Um, and so it's always a constant well, what, are, what do the developers want? And then we'll check with everyone else kind of city. And I think that's the problem. We shouldn't be able to believe this. This should be something that as soon as somebody talks about it, we're like, no, 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 the city of Buffalo wouldn't do that. But at the city of Buffalo needs to ask themselves, why do people believe this? Why is this something mm-hmm. that can even be brought up? Well, because, you know, people tend to believe this type of thing about a city who's done it before. So are you saying... Developers have a little too much power in this city. They, a little they too much. Di- dictate things over here. A lot of too much. Um, there's there, Developers are in a situation in this city where if they talk to the right people and they promise the right things, they can essentially get whatever they want. And I, and I, and I, don't, and I don't think that's a stretch of the imagination for anybody who's, who's uh, been in the game with, with politics. Uh, in this city. And it doesn't have to be that way. Um, Multiple nonprofits have suggested that all you have to do is just open the auctions up to locals first. Don't allow outside, you know, people who don't care about the city to come in, snap up land, and then hold it and become slumlords, Mm -hmm. right? Um, it's, It's a very simple thing, right? We can allow the auctions to go to locals first and then open it up to developers. We could give public land for public benefit, right? We could force um, developers when they be, create these huge monstrosities to, to do some integrated living, right? Some mix in some, some affordable housing with that, the luxury of housing, right? It's, it's very simple. And, and that's the, that's the thing. We have all the solutions. It's just a matter of political will. Is luxury housing sustainable? In Absolutely the city? not. <laughs> Absolutely not. It's, it's actually very odd to me that we have luxury housing at all. I mean, I understand that there's people who have more than others, of course, and they want to live at a higher standard than others, but they can go buy a house. Mm-hmm. We don't need that in the city. We don't need, we don't need a, 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 a sky-rise building overlooking the city when we have the entire east side struggling, right? It, it's, it's, it's very dystopian, or dystopian, I guess, to, to see like this luxury apartment building coming up over here and then the east side of Buffalo can't even get their sidewalks paved, right? Mm-hmm. They have open lots that um, where dilapidating houses. There's there's just massive disinvestment in one part of the city. So how, how dare you build luxury apartments when people 
on one part of the in one part of the city are struggling like that. Yeah, I mean, there's there's I can drive down Elmwood and and from from Elmwood and Forest to like Elmwood and uh, West Utica, there's there's at least two new buildings with luxury luxury housing, and it's just I don't know. It's it's seems strange especially right. when you drive especially as you said driving around the east side you see vacant lots and everything and, and houses being torn down uh it's just it's a tale of two cities it really is right um and again you're listening to buffalo what's next i'm thomas o'neill white i'm talking criminal justice i'm talking public land with madai university criminal justice professor orlando dixon orlando i would be i would be remiss if I didn't ask you about working with my brother, the My Brother's Keepers group through Say Yes Buffalo, what does it mean to you to to help mold young black and brown men? Oh, it means everything. Um, when I was a kid, I didn't have um, the type of mentorship that um, that would have allowed me to reach success earlier, um, or even it could have kept me out of. Um, certain things that I got into that I shouldn't have been into, right? Um, and all it takes sometimes is a voice, um, a voice that looks like you, um, right? Um, somebody who can come in the room and say, actually, there's a better way. Um, and I can show you because I've done it. And I think that, you know, MBK does that. Say Yes is an excellent program. Everything that I've ever done with them has been amazing. Um, you know, Daniel and Tommy, they, those guys are they're pillars of the community, Absolutely. Um, Daniel and Tommy, shout out to you guys. <laughs> please, please come on the show. <laughs> they should. They should. Um, and um, also they have a, I think they have a podcast um, as well, which um, where they where they um, they let the young men come on and talk about the issues in the in the Amer in the uh, in the area and in their own personal lives. So, yeah, check them out as well. Um, but, yeah, they're 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 amazing. Um, I haven't been as involved in the last three months. I was finishing up my master's program. So. Mm -hmm. Um, I had to pull back a little bit, but um, I'm looking forward to re-engaging. You also served in the military. Yes, I did. Can you talk a little bit about your experience? Uh, yeah, so uh, I was in the U.S. Army for nine years active, um, and nine years, one day, and 22 hours to be exact. Um, don't ask me why I was counting. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I was in, I, I went to um, Iraq, um, and I went to Afghanistan. I was in Iraq for 15 months, and I was in Afghanistan for 12 months. Um, yeah, it was a very unique experience. I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad I served. I think, um, you know, I was trying to, you know, I was on, I was, I was homeless when I was a kid. I was, I grew up poor. I was on public benefits and I kind of felt like I owed the, the government back a little bit. So that was one of my main reasons for doing it. But also my cousin had recently passed away and he had used to tell me about being in Vietnam and, and it kind of made me feel like if I didn't serve, um, that I would regret it one day, and I didn't want that regret. Um, but yeah, I enjoyed my time in. They have their own issues. Um, I dealt with issues of racism. I dealt with some issues of, um, you know, mis I guess misaligned goals when it came to response to to uh, sexual assault. There were a lot of people in high places that that didn't get the same treatment um, when it came to sexual assault. Mm -hmm. um, and that was part of the reason I started to move towards getting out. I also, you know, had a few injuries and stuff. So um, that was also a reason for me to start um, exiting. But, yeah, I think there's some issues they still have to resolve within the military. But overall, it was a positive experience. 
Um, lessons I, lessons yeah. learned from your yeah. experience. Can you get Absolutely. into the, those? Um, yes. Um, I, I, I think the, the most common lesson that everybody learns is discipline. Um, when you sit back and you think about, you know, am I doing the things necessary to succeed? Um, and it, a lot of it just requires creating a habit within yourself. Um, structured life. Every day I'm going to get up at this time and do this thing, regardless of how I feel, regardless of the situation. That discipline, the military really beats that into you, um, for lack of a better term. <laughs> um, but just outside of that, the camaraderie, you, you start to learn the value of people. Um, you know, the, the people who are around you, the people that you're serving, especially when you're in a third world country, it also puts things into perspective. Like, I'm in a country where somebody lives in a house that's made of mud and I had the audacity to complain about being homeless as a kid, right? When I have a shelter that I can go to that's, you know, a brick and mortar building and somebody else is literally living in a hut made of mud. And that's not to say that, that these people don't prosper. They are incredible people. The things that I've seen them accomplish with so little are incredible. So, um, it, it just really puts things into perspective for you. When I got back from Iraq, I literally bent down and kissed the grass because it had been so long since I had seen that much green. Right. Uh -huh. Um, so yeah, it really puts things in perspective. Yeah. Talk to me about working at Madai, um, as a criminal justice professor. What's that like? I absolutely love it. I, I honestly feel like it's the calling that I missed, right? I, I felt like this is something I should have always been doing. I don't get up and I don't get up in the morning and, and hate going to work. It's, it's, it's a love thing. I, I genuinely love that feeling of teaching somebody something, imparting wisdom or whatever it is, right? When I, when I, when I tell somebody a new piece of information and that light bulb goes off in their head and they're like, oh, I just learned something, that does something to me internally. That's something that, there's no feeling like that. This person now knows something they didn't, and I'm the one that helped them get that, to that place, and it, it's a great feeling. Professor and activist Orlando Dixon. Since the airing of this episode, Orlando Dixon is now lecturing at the University of Buffalo Law School. And we end the show with Jay Moran speaking with attorney Jason Daniels. Uh, thanks for uh, joining us and giving us some of your time and perspective as well. Uh, Jason, we should tell you, is a, a young attorney. He's been, uh, he's been at this business only for, uh, a rel for some of us, a relatively short period of time and professionally. Uh, Jason is also a, a, a black man who grew up here in western New York as well. And uh, because of that, uh, you're, when in, you're in places right now when it comes to the, with the Catholic Health Leadership Team or any other place for that matter when you get involved with leadership. One of the few people of color, correct? Yeah, no, there's there's not many. And I think you see that kind of throughout not only all the organizations, but, you know, in healthcare. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's, a, it's a reasonable thing. And I guess it, for you, it's something that you experienced as you were going through college and through your, your education. You have an MBA as well, plus your, your law degree. I mean, that's something you saw early on. Oh, yeah, yeah. Being in college, you know, as soon as you get to like junior, senior year, you just don't see many people that look like you. And then, you know, in law school, there's not a ton. And in business school, there, there's even fewer. So it's like you kind of start to get the idea of, you know, if, if these are the schools that feed these kind of jobs, that there's not a lot of people like me doing these kind of jobs. So it's like you just start to prepare yourself mentally. And, you know, you start to realize this is what this looks like. Can you tell, take us through that a little bit? Like you said, prepare yourself mentally. I mean, that's Easier said than done. You know, I wake up every morning trying to prepare myself mentally for things, and I, I look back at the end of the day, and I, whatever I prepared for didn't come come to fruition, and I didn't change. But what about for you? How how did you, like you said, prepare 
for those challenges that were ahead that you knew were going to be coming? Yeah, you know, you just you just look at it. I mean, for me, kind of growing up, I didn't, you know, I, I wanted to be a lawyer because I saw it on TV. Like, I watched a lot of court TV and it became interesting to me. But, like, you know, coming up, I didn't know any lawyers or really have any experience and everything. It was just kind of, you know, what I had seen. And, you know, when I got to college, there were people, and you could just tell, you know, there were people who, you know, had parents who were lawyers and, you know, had different people who were in different professions and they had some of that guidance. And myself, I kind of just, you know, figured it out on my own. And, you know, I found good mentors, you know, as I got further on and I got into law school and stuff. But, but early on, it was like, it was like, you know, just trying to navigate and to try to figure out, you know, what this looks like. So you had no specific role model, so to speak, as you were making your way along this, this journey? Not really. Yeah, it was just kind of like, you know, I, this is what I want to do. I think I could be I think I could be good at it, you know. These people seem to do well financially. That was a goal of mine and, you know, I just kind of pushed forward and, you know, really as I got older and as I, you know, got more school behind me and everything, I started to really get a better idea of, okay, you know, this is good and like, you know, this person, you know, it looks this person looks like somebody who, you know, I should talk to or, or do something with and everything, but a lot of it really came organically. What makes uh, what makes a good lawyer? What makes a good uh, somebody who who does your kind of work? So, so it, there's differences, right? So, you know, there there are some lawyers who are you know trial lawyers and there's courtroom lawyers, and you know, there's a specific skill set to do that. For me, kind of being more of an in-house corporate guy, it's really about people skills and it's about relationship building and it's about being able to you know, being able to relate to all kinds of different people and, you know, have conversations and build trust. Let's go through your journey just a little bit, if we could, and talk about some of the things that you experienced. Uh, obviously, you know, we hear about it on so many levels of society about the difficulty it can can be for people of color and lots of things, especially in a community like Buffalo that has a high level of segregation. What about your journey along the way? What can you share with us that you know wasn't necessarily all that easy? Yeah. So, um, you know, some things like, you know, I remember first becoming a lawyer and, you know, I would go into meetings with, you know, my with my paralegal who was an older white woman and, you know, everybody would assume she was a lawyer. And I was and I was just and that went on for like a month or so. And then, you know, people kind of start to get to know you and everything. But, you know, you have other situations like, you know, I had a, a situation this was some years ago where, you know, we had a meeting. I forgot what the meeting was about. But after the meeting, I was having a conversation with another employee about a football game or something like that. And, you know, a more senior lawyer who was, you know, an older white woman pulled me to the side afterwards and told me that I didn't speak in a way that, you know, she felt represented the organization well. And for me, that was like was one of like the first kind of moments where it was that was that kind of happened directly. So it kind of set me back a little bit. But then, you know, you have to you have to kind of, you know take inventory of the situation, right? Like I'm, you know, a young black man and I'm in this department where, you know, our boss was a white woman and there's all these other, you know, everybody in the department's either a white woman or, you know, an Irish man. And, you know, if I, you know, get into it with this woman or something like that, you know, is it worth it? And sure. and how's it going to go for me? And, you know, you sometimes you run into those situations where people say, some, say you know, things that are off-putting. Like, for example, like, you know, I wear earrings. And early in my practice, you know, people would, you know, call it out or say something and everything. And it's just like, you know, you kind of have to laugh some stuff off that maybe you don't necessarily think is funny. Yeah. yeah. Just curious back to that conversation about football. You you said that, but 
what specifically was just the way just a couple of guys talking about a game and just you know, the way have, you were the passion have, of it all? You know, I, I, have, I have no idea. But, really? you know, we were just talking about the game and talking about some players and stuff like that and everything. And I forgot exactly what the conversation was. But, you know, evidently she didn't like the way I said something or something I, I said. We certainly, you know, weren't using any profanity or anything like that. But it was just but, you know, that was uh, that was a person who, you know, she came from a, an, another law firm where it also they you know, I don't think they ever had any employees of color or anything like that. And she came in and she was a little older and you could tell like she was a little older school about things. And, you know, she, you know, she just had, you know, weird ways. But for me, it was offsetting because, you know, at that time I was a person I'd been a lawyer for some time for, you know, at least a few years and, you know, went through law school and went through business school. And I'd been, you know, involved in all kinds of meetings and everything. And nobody had ever told me, you know, the way you speak isn't proper for, you know, for this organization. So it was like. Yeah. What yeah. about expectations? As you were talking about that, I was thinking when a man of color walks into a room, a professional room or wherever, it doesn't have to be there. It can be there. But what about that? Do you have a sense of people's expectations? They, they see you in there, you know, all, you know, all of a sudden they may expect you to be something that you are not. Do you ever get that kind of a reaction? Not so much, you know, especially early on, I would get like, you know, it would seem like people were surprised Okay, while I was there because I was, you know, a pretty young guy and everything. But that would happen a little bit. I don't necessarily know about expectations. I know for myself, you know, my expectations of myself, you know, I have a lot of, you know, white friends who are lawyers. And, you know, we talk and we talk about like career and expectations and, and stuff like that and everything. And I feel like I always feel like they're a little more at ease than me. Like, you know, for me. I'm not necessarily uptight. Like, you know, I've been doing my job for a while. I, I feel like I'm really good at it. But, you know, there's always kind of this, I, you know, I think some people call it imposter syndrome, where it's like, you know, you feel like, you know, this could end any time or like <laughs> something could happen. And you just, you know, you feel like you have to be more careful than I feel like other people do. Okay. And, you know, sometimes it's a little limiting because, you know, you'll see an opportunity or something like that and everything. And you'll have to, you know, kind of dial it back in your head. While I feel like other people just feel like, oh, I'm supposed to be here. So this is supposed to happen. Wow. But yeah. yet you've been able to, to deal with that. Uh, can, can you take us through how you, again, go about dealing with the, that that sense that you know that you, maybe you can't proceed quite as aggressively or as uh, naturally as maybe other people can? Yeah. I, I think at this point, you know, I've been at it for long enough where... It's just part know, of who yeah, you are. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's just kind of a what happens happens things. You know, I... I I operate under proceed until apprehended at this point. So it's like, you know, I just keep going further and I do the best work that I can do. And, you know, I, I try to surround myself with people who I know are good people. Like, you know, right now, you know, I'm in a situation that at Catholic Health where my boss is a really good friend of mine, you know, and our CEO is a really good guy. And there's a lot of people who I know support me and support what we're doing. And I always like, you know, when I'm looking at opportunities and when I'm figuring out what I'm going to do next, that's really important to me. Like, you know, I always identify I'm like you know I need to have a boss who's a person that I connect with who's a person that I like and I know is going to support me so I feel comfortable you know being me and proceeding and everything because you know you hear horror stories about people who end up in really bad situations sure. and and I'm just like you know I've gotten to the point where you know my kind of peace of mind is more important than being in than making a little more money and being in a different position so I've just you know, I've just gotten to the point where, you know, it's it's really first it's about like the people and then it's about, OK, you know, this is the job that I like and everything. Proceed until apprehended. I'm going to take that and okay. steal that from you. By <laughs> that. that is a memorable phrase right there for sure. Jason Daniels is our guest here on uh, Buffalo. What's next? He's the senior legal counsel at uh, Catholic Health. Um, what about from 
learning through the legal system. And I, lawyers, I, I think you would agree with me, once trained, think differently than other people, right? They are people who aren't attorneys. They're, there's You go through a process of, of how to think about things, how yeah. to think about issues. Has that helped, do you think, in like what you're talking about right here, of, of prioritizing, of, of knowing where your lines and the sand have to be when it comes to these types of relationships? Yeah, a, a little bit. You know, some, some, of it's, some of it's that. The other thing is, is just like learning how to read people. You know, for years, like when I was in college and uh, I, you know, I waited tables and I bartended a little bit and I, you know, you get to be around different kinds of people and you just, you learn how to read people a little bit. And, and I feel like, especially in, in my line of work, like working in-house with a large organization, it's really about just building relationships and just kind of knowing, you know, what goes over with who and, you know, who kind of feels a certain kind of way and playing to that a little bit. You know, not, I, I think maybe playing to it is a bad, you know, is a bad characterization, but right. but just understanding how to deal with certain kinds of people. Right. You know, and realizing that, you know, some people you have to meet them where they are because they're never going to be, you know, where you where you want them to be, but you know, you engage with them in a certain way anyways. And, you know, just knowing how to knowing how to, you know, have those conversations and relate to people. And, you know, there, you know, some people you you find common ground, right? Like, you know, some people you really don't have anything in common with. So you, you think about the basic things, right? Like, you know, we both like football or right. you know, we both like, you know, plays or traveling or just kind of whatever. And you just, you know, really build relationships off of those commonalities. People use the term microaggressions yes. when it comes to dealing with uh, um, racial issues and such. What about for you? When you hear that term microaggressions, what do you think about? Oh, it happens all the time. Really? It, it, and the thing is, so, you know, it's not all intentional. Sometimes it's just, you know, somebody who's never spoke never spoken to somebody who looks like you before or, you know, isn't comfortable and, and things like that. And I think, you know, at least the way I operate is, you know, I try to create a safe space for people to, you know, I don't take myself super seriously. So, you know, if I'm having a conversation with somebody and it's not somebody that I'm familiar with, you know, I just try to make them understand that, you know, it's, it's a safe space. So, you know, if you say something that's not, you know, that's not something that's proper or, or something like that and everything, like I'll, I'll tell you about it, but, you know, it's always in a, you know, in a friendly way. And, you know, very seldom is there, you know, very seldom professionally, at least, is there something malicious. Sure. You know, there's been a couple, you know, a couple small situations where there have been things that I felt was malicious. But most of the time it's just, you know, misunderstandings. And I think there's two ways you can handle it. You know, I've seen people take those little small misunderstandings and make huge ordeals out of them and really blow things out of proportion. But, you know, the other way, which I, I think is the better way to really just use those as teachable moments and, you know, educate and talk through things and, you know, build relationships in that way. Because ultimately, once you take it out of proportion, people go back into their, you know, back kind of into their shells and you don't get anywhere. Yeah, it's an interesting approach to it. And I would you would probably know well enough that not everybody would take it quite that right. Oh, right, not at right. all. Yeah. And, and I think, and I think especially with what you've seen over the last couple of years with really like, you know, there's, there's been a really big push and things like DE and I, and, you know, after George Floyd and just a lot of what's going on, you see like a really big push and people are getting kind of really aggressive right away. And that's just not an approach that works with everyone. I mean, you got to think about it. You know, a lot of these people right or wrong, they've operated in a professional environment where there's, only been people that right. have looked like them in certain spaces for, you know, 30, 40, 50 years. So to expect that because this one thing happened, everybody's going to automatically change tomorrow, you know, it's not appropriate, you know, and it's not and it's not reasonable. So, you know, 
obviously people who have certain beliefs that are inappropriate, they have to change things and they have to, you know, really think about, you know, who they are or what they're presenting, especially in the workplace. But but I think you kind of have to meet people where they're at a little bit and like bring them along instead of expecting everybody to be exactly where you are from day one. Sure. Yeah. Interesting about microaggressions. You've, you've nodded very quickly at the affirmative that you understand it. And our, our listening audience, it seems to me, this particular program has really resonated with them in a lot of ways. And if you wouldn't mind sharing what you, when it comes to microaggressions, if you mind sharing maybe a couple of examples. Because again, the, I think we have a lot of people who, since May 14th especially, want to make a difference. They want to make a difference. They want to make a difference in how they deal with people and how they can help this community move forward. What about some of those things that you've experienced that, that you know, this is something that happens a lot and you know, you'd rather yeah, like, not yeah. see it happen. And, yeah, and yeah. you can understand maybe how others take, uh, take things a little more uh, offensive yeah. a little bit more. Absolutely. I mean, the, the one, I think the low hanging fruit one that happens all the time is when they introduce when they introduce people of color to leadership positions, they immediately say, you know, how well, how well they speak or, you know, <laughs> they're, you know, they, they seem, they present themselves really well, or it's like, you know, they're, they're like compliments, but they're not compliments that they give to, you know, every other you know white man or woman sure. that's ever been in that role. And I, you know, I see that all the time. And that's like one thing that I immediately call out. I'm like, you know, well, have we ever done it? Like, do we do this in other, like, you know, why do we feel the need to say that this, you know, master's educated person speaks well? Obviously they speak well, right? Like, you know, those kind of things, you know, a lot of the things, especially when dealing with women of color, the hair, you know, there's okay. like, you know, just comments like that and not necessarily malicious comments, but like, you know, assuming because, you know, black woman has straight hair that she's Indian or, or something like that, or, you know, just, you know, assuming that every, you know, black man over six feet plays basketball, like, right. you know, just things like that, or, or listens to rap music or just, you know, things like that, that I think come from a good place and maybe come from uncomfortability, but, you know, it's not necessarily the kind of comment that you would make towards, you know, a person of a different color or background. What advice would you have to uh, a, a white person, uh, again, this, this type of person who's, you know, just, you know, wants to go about doing things the right way, but they're older or whatever. They've lived in, like you said, you know, mainly places of non-color throughout their, their days and, you know, between education and workplace and such. What, thought, what about that? What thoughts, you know, what would you like to see building relationships in that regard? What do you, what do you think could help? Well, I'd like to say, First and foremost, the fact that they're thinking that way is like a big step in the right direction, right? Because there are a ton of people who couldn't care less about this and, you know, really have no interest in changing the way they think or anything like that. So, you know, the fact that a person's forward thinking and like, you know, has those thoughts in the first place is is really good to begin with. One of my really close friends who was my original boss from a couple jobs ago and a great mentor of mine, you know, her and I are really good friends. We, you know, hang out, have dinner and stuff like that and everything. And, you know, she's a 64 year old white woman and I'm, you know, a young guy. And, you know, one thing that, that we connected on is she was just always really forward thinking. And she understood that she grew up in a time long before where, where things were different, but she was really open-minded and really kind of willing to accept that, you know, things have changed and, and understand that. And I think just kind of, you know, keeping your ears open and understanding things. And then also just trying to, you know, when people give you feedback, you know, not, not necessarily taking, not necessarily taking offense to it, especially if the feedback is respectfully given, but also just kind of thinking about, you know, purposefully thinking about the things you say and why you're saying them, right? Like, you know, when you're writing an introduction for a new employee who's a person of color, right? Look at 
look at the introductions you've written for employees before. And, you know, if there's a big difference, why? Why is that? Why am I saying this and I didn't and I didn't say this before? And it takes work because those aren't, you know, things that we naturally do, because I think we all come kind of hardwired with, you know, stereotypes and assumptions and things like that. Like there's times where, you know, I'll look at a person and I'll assume something because of the way they look or, or how they are. And that, you know, assumption isn't and that assumption isn't correct at all. You know, one one thing I think about I think about all the time, like, you know, um kind of, you know, being a being a younger guy, you know, on the weekends you go into work to pick up, you know, you go into work to pick up papers or something like that and you're dressed in whatever you wear you wear on the weekend. And the thing about, you know, being a lawyer, you know, it's like when you're in a suit or you're dressed up and everything, people look at you a certain way. Right. But you know, when you're in sweats and stuff, it's like it's different. And I've had some interesting interactions with, you know, security and with, you know, different people and stuff, just kind of off hours come up to the office to pick stuff up. And those aren't the same kind of interactions that, you know, my, my white counterpart counterparts have had. So it's just kind of getting, you know, kind of getting through some of those things also. Wow. Uh, Jason Daniels with us uh, from Catholic Health. He's their senior legal counsel, and we're having a, a great conversation. It's interesting also in this regard, Jason, that you... Uh, as you mentioned in the last couple of years, these issues when it comes to race have become uh, at the forefront and deservedly so in workplace environments for sure. And you're a part of the of the leadership team at, at Catholic Health that's involved in the, the diversity and inclusion work that's going on inside uh, the company. Talk ab- about the approach. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I'm the program lead for that program. And, you know, it's been it's been really good. It's gone, actually gone a lot better than I thought it would in the beginning. But, you know, it's because you know, our CEO and, you know, a lot of people really support what we're doing. But, you know, so so first and foremost, we've, you know, we've we put the program in place and we've, you know, built committees at all the hospitals and we started to try to just be more involved in the community and work with schools and, you know, just do different things to make people feel more included. You know, we presented orientation and let new employees know kind of what we're doing and everything. We try to have programming and education and training and, and things like that. And, you know, we've done some really good things like, you know, this year. Catholic Health participated in the Pride Parade, which is like the first time that that's that that's ever happened. And, you know, people. And what was the reaction to that? So the reaction from you know our associates and our leadership was overwhelmingly positive. OK. But, you know, we have a lot of folks within the organization and, you know, attached to the organization who, you know, are religious and that's against their faith. And there was some pushback in that area, you know, where, you know, we we did get, you know, some negative feedback that went to, you know, some of the churches and some of the different things. And, you know, at that point we had already done it and, you know, it was like, can't unring the bell now, but it was, you know, afterwards kind of dealing with some of that blowback. It's like, you realize that, you know, you can't go a thousand miles an hour right. to do everything. Right. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I mean, again, when we talk about the Catholic religion, obviously a religion that's steeped in historic tradition, yep. uh, things don't uh, change very easily, but do you, do you see that though, that the organization itself, though, has has really made some strides in that regard. Yeah, yeah. Especially everybody's trying. Like that's the thing. the The biggest thing is is you know there are definitely some areas where we would like to be further than where we are, but ultimately you know everybody's supportive and everybody and everybody's trying and everybody's kind of on board, so to speak. But but it's just you know it's just managing what on board looks like right. for, for different people. And it's really, you know, just managing through, you know, some of the hospital, I, I think sister's hospital is like a hundred years old. Right. Right. And so, right. you know, it's, there's just, you know, a lot of people who, you know, think a certain kind of way and it's about, 
you know, it's about bringing everybody on at the same time so you don't lose people. Because ultimately, if you go, you know, a thousand miles this way and, you know, everybody was like, oh, you know, that's too far or, or we're not quite ready for that now, then you lose a ton of people, right? And if you don't have everybody on board, then you don't really have a program. You just have a few people kind of doing stuff. So, you know, one of the really tough things to manage has just been going at the right pace for everybody and just kind of, you know, keeping everybody in the loop. Like, I feel like, you know, you over communicate things and you just try to, you know, get people on board and make people comfortable with what we're doing. But, you know, the one thing that I'll say, you know, even from, you know, folks from the diocese and, you know, folks in our leadership and everything like, you know, everybody's supportive and everybody's been involved and everybody, you know, is really supportive in doing this. And if you would have asked me before I joined the organization, you know, if that would have been the case, I don't know if I would have told you yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It's interesting. And what about uh, maybe on a broader perspective? And obviously, you're only really familiar when it comes to your particular organization yeah. and your efforts. But overall, what you're seeing in the workplace landscape um, when it comes to diversity and inclusion, what's your sense? Yeah. So, so I see three different kinds of organizations, right? There's organizations who aren't doing anything at all, and it's just not a part of it. I see organizations who have like, one employee, right? They basically, they pick said black person, make them chief diversity officer and throw them into the pool. And many times that person's like the only person of color in their leadership team. Mm. And it's like, go do stuff, right? And that generally don't work, doesn't work. And then there's other organizations that, you know, you know, ours is definitely less mature in that area, but you see like M&T, they have, you know, a really good program. And, you know, Glenn Jackson over there, he's really good. And they do a lot of stuff and get a lot of people involved. But organizations that really try to engage lots of different people from different places in the organization and really kind of make it a, more of a team effort than a one person pushing it or than a we're not doing anything at all, our culture's fine. So, you know, those are the, the three different things that I see. And, you know, I think it's more of a Buffalo thing because, you know, I have friends that you know, live down in Atlanta, live in D.C., live in different places, and they are light years ahead of us to some extent. There are some organizations in those places, too, who sure. are also like, you know, we don't care about that either. So, you know, you get, you know, it's a mixed, it's a mixed bunch. It's interesting you bring up Atlanta. Uh, we had a conversation um, a while ago with uh, Madison Carter, who was here uh, for uh, some time as a, a reporter, and she moved to Atlanta. And yeah. one of the conversations I brought up was, you know, talk about the differences with Atlanta and Buffalo. And she reflected a lot of what you just you just mentioned there. But I'm curious for a guy like you, you're you're a professional. You're, you're you know obviously moved ahead in your your field very quickly. Is there an attraction to go to a place like Atlanta or Washington? For me, yeah. no, because I'm a Buffalo guy, Good. and like I love Buffalo, and it's just you know it's just where I am. But the one thing I'll say, I have relatives that live in Atlanta and everything, and the one thing that you know we that really, really, really is great in those places that we don't have here is you go to those cities and you see neighborhoods, affluent black and, you know, Hispanic and like you just see full neighborhoods with people of color, right? And they're affluent and they're nice neighborhoods. And it's almost surprising because, you know, being from Buffalo, sure. if you go to a nice neighborhood, it's a mostly white neighborhood. You know, I, I live in Williamsville and, you know, <laughs> Williamsville, you don't really have many black neighbors, right? It's just <laughs> it's just how it is. So to go other places and to be like in nice areas and to see lots of people that look like you, it's like, wow, like this is, you know, this is great. But for me, the thought process is always, I would love to have this in Buffalo. Not necessarily, I want to come here for this. I'm interested, uh, I want to get into this in a little bit because you can bring a lot of different perspectives, both, uh, you know, from your personal journey and also, of course, you, you know, your legal background and, and knowing the law. Uh, first of all, just when it comes to Buffalo and what has kept it 
back. What do you see? What do you think? So, you know, there's a lot of things. You know, Buffalo's incredibly segregated just as far as the way it's the way it's split up and everything. But also it's about it's about like opportunities, it's about the, the, the education you get and you live in certain places. Like, you know, for example, when I was a, a kid, when I was a little kid, I went to school 37, which is, you know, right over right over in the Fruit Belt and everything. And I went there to about second or third grade. And then from there, I went to Chitawaga Central, which is like first ring suburb school, not like Williamsville or Clarence, but a better school. And I remember going from you know, 37 to Chitawaga Central, like, I felt like I missed a grade. Really? It was like, like, there was such a, there was such a difference in what they were teaching at one school than, than the other. And were you, you know, ready for it? Were you ready for it personally at the time? Well, I was a kid, so. You but know, you know I, what I'm saying? Know. But I'm just saying, like, you know, I mean, were you, did you grab, did you go up to speed very quickly no, or did you, it, did it you struggle me, a little It took bit? me a couple of years. Yeah. Like, okay. like really, I, you know, when I was at 37, you know, as a kid, I've always been a, a really good student and got really good grades sure. and stuff like that. And I went from being like an honor roll student to like a just kind of barely making a student for a, for a little while. And after a couple of years, you know, it clicked in and it worked and I ended up doing really, really well. Right. But there was definitely a gap. And, you know, at the time, I didn't understand this because I was a kid. But looking back, I think to myself, like, you know, that could really frustrate somebody or, you know, if somebody really, you know, doesn't have the aptitude or doesn't have the support at home that that I fortunately had and everything it it could be something that could really derail you and kind of later on you know Chitawaka Central became more of a diverse school and I saw a lot of peers kind of go through that and everything where they were really where they came from Buffalo Public Schools and they came from other schools and they really struggled and they couldn't quite get their footing and you know they ended up you know becoming behavioral problems or you know having these other things happen or failing out or whatever but you know, before because there weren't those there weren't those supports in place. So like one of the things that we've been talking about a lot with our DEI program now and with, you know, a lot of the, you know, mentoring and things like that are, you know, a part of, you know, wanting more diverse people is, you know, kind of helping them get here. Right. So like, you know, I don't feel like, you know, no offense to anybody who's, you know, part of that school system. I don't feel like the Buffalo public schools adequately prepare children of color because of problems at home, because of other things to get to, you know, where I am today right. or to get to, you know, a lot of the, a lot of these positions and without pipelines, without organizations kind of reaching back and helping them get there. I just don't think that'll, that'll happen. There, we've heard this term use, uh, you can't imagine what you can't see yep. that, you know, there's not a lot of black professionals, especially like we've already gotten into it, in the city of Buffalo, in these segregated neighborhoods, these poor neighborhoods. Um, what about that? What, is there something there that, again, I mean, you know, you're only one person, you're yeah. only one guy, but what about getting those people who have succeeded, getting them in front of other one, other people? Does it matter? What does it matter to have, you know, a, a you know, a Jason Daniels show up at, you know, the second grade uh, uh, class at a public school? Does it matter? I think it matters a ton. You know, I I would have loved to, I would have loved to have seen me when I was younger, and I think. I think it's encouraging. I think, you know, a lot of people coming up, like, you don't see anybody succeed in that way that looks like you. So it's hard to, like, it's hard to imagine a path to do this thing that you've never seen anybody that looks like you do. So I think I think it's really helpful for people to go in and mentor and do things like that. Like, you know, one of the things that I do is, you know, I adjunct at ECC City sometime. Okay. And the reason that I do that is because, you know, coming up, you know, from pretty much third grade all the way through, like I never had a professor or a teacher who was a person of color. So, wow. and that was one thing I was like, you know, if I ever get into a position, I would love to change that. Like I would love to, you know, be that, be that person. And I, you know, 
go and I, I teach business classes and afterwards people come up to me and they want to talk to me and they want to engage and they're like, you know, I've never, you know, had a teacher who was a person of color. Or I've never like been around somebody and you build those and you build those relationships. And I think that helps people understand that, wow, you know, this is this is possible or or I can do this. And I think the earlier you engage people and just kind of, you know, get their minds working that, you know, there's a path for you. There's a way for you to get to where you want to go to. I think the earlier the better, because you know ultimately that'll at least have that'll at least have an impact on them. You know, you, you don't know what their home situation or anything like that, but they'll understand that you know there's another path to success besides kind of what I see on TV or you know the people that I see you know that are famous and things like that. And that will do it for today's summertime producers picks episode. We'd like to thank our guests, Professor Orlando Dixon and Jason Daniels. If you miss anything and you'd like to hear it again, a reminder that this program is a podcast. You can get wherever you get your podcast or the new Amplify BTPM app. And each episode is available online on demand at WBFO.org. This is WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station. This is Charles Gilbert. Thanks for listening.